on sale tomorrow morning. Get your tickets early, they will sell out. That was some good stuff, I like that. That was pretty good. Give the male course a hand again for doing such a good job. That was good. Well, Percy sung that thing too, didn't he? Are you ready? Are you ready? He acting like he might be ready. Are you ready, Percy? There it is, right there. See, see, I, see, I, I ain't had to call a name. See, I, I just want to give you a heads up. You already know that, right? All right, I just, you know, I need to put a disclaimer clause at the bottom, just so you know. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Tickets gonna go on sale tomorrow. Uh, to get a front row seat is ninety nine ninety nine. Mid-level, $49.99, and up in the conference room, $9.99. Just trying to help you out. You know, we're going to, and this, all, this is the only song we're going to sing, the whole concert. This is it right here. So, so. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Isn't it good just to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Yes, sir. getting the longer I'm on this journey I've come to realize you really shouldn't make a whole lot of minor stuff you know what I mean just stuff that really isn't important really doesn't mean a whole lot uh, but just enjoy the journey and enjoy the moment I'm really starting to learn that don't make a whole lot of stuff that's just not important at all now, see that's the first time you gave me some good advice it just don't make sense just don't make no sense, does it? It really doesn't. It really doesn't, man. I mean, it's just life just so short. So short. It just doesn't make sense to make a lot over nothing. But just go ahead and enjoy yourself. You know, be happy. That's why I, you know, I decided church going to be exciting for me. I'm, I'm not going to make a lot over a lot of stuff no more. It's just, I mean, you might as well. When you're dead and gone, somebody else going to stand in your place anyway. Just go and enjoy it while you're here. You know what I mean? All right, let's get to the word. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and verse 17 and 18. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 17 and 18. Deacon Bazemore, did you tell the people thank you on behalf of your wife? Okay, you did? All right, now, because I don't want no trouble out of Miss Bazemore. You told them? All right, I just wanted to make sure. But boy, I, mean, I don't have to go to Claremont Avenue to live tonight, but I just want to make sure you can go back there. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate that, my brother. Thank you. 
Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, uh, verse 17 and 18. Verse 16 is a question posed by Jesus as he descends from the mountain and discovers that the disciples, along with the scribes, are in some translations, dialogue, some argument, some dispute, but I enjoy uh, Eugene Peterson's word in cross-examination. And then Jesus asked the question, what are you arguing about? What's the issue here? Why are you spending time doing this? And I think here's an interesting impartation in verse 17. It says that one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, that's enough. That's all I want to preach on right there. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, continuation of the verse, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grits his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. Last Sunday, we heard a very pointed but yet honest proclamation from the Father who in dialogue, listening to Jesus, when Jesus posed the question to him, in reference to how long his son had been in this condition. And the man responds by telling Jesus, if you can help us out, have mercy on us and give us your assistance, heal my son. And Jesus responds by saying to him, if I can help you. Now, I want to make a correction, but yet a continuation there. Last Sunday, uh, I shared with you that when Jesus says, if I can, at the end of those three words is an exclamation point. I must also come back and tell you that depends on what translation you're reading, because you may not only see an exclamation point in some, like you may have in the English Standard Version, but in the New American Standard, in the NIV, in the King James Version, you're going to see a question at the end of those three words, if I can. They both lead to the same conclusion. And that conclusion, Jesus, is it's not really, uh, when we think about this, it's not if I can heal your son. That's, that's not an issue. The question is if you can believe that I will heal your son. I'm not the issue here, says Jesus. You are. Not even your son is the principal cause here. It's actually predicated upon, can you believe that I'm able to do more than you could ever ask or think if I, not you? So we learned that the father said something in return. He says, Lord, I believe in religion but yet help my unbelief in what you can do. That's a deeper question that we're not going to work with today, but I believe in religion, but help me with my unbelief in what you can do in these situations. Yet the Father is who I want to talk about this afternoon. The Father 
because the Father is a depiction of all of us in a very monumental way to illustrate unto us how we are when life is larger than we are in terms of its challenges of tribulations and trials, how we attempt to expend all of our energy in trying to solve it, and yet in the end only to realize God is the only one that has the answer to the complex problems that we encounter. And this father is going to help us understand some deep things about both the disciples as representatives of church and about ourselves in stepping forward. And that's the title of this sermon. Last week it was, Lord, I want to do better. Help me with my unbelief. This Sunday it's, Lord, I want to do better. Help me to step forward. Because that's, that's, that's what you have in the opening line of verse 17. Just the line is all I want to deal with, just that opening line. There was one man in the crowd who stepped up and said something monumental to Jesus. In the Vatican gallery hangs Raphael's last painting, which some think to be his greatest, it's entitled The Transfiguration, and the utmost part pictures the transfigured form of Jesus with Moses on his left and Elijah on his right. The next level down from that are the three disciples that are there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, who are recently awakened and shielding their eyes from Jesus' blinding brilliance of that transformative moment on the mountain. And then down at ground level in this painting, at ground level is this poor demon-possessed son, boy, his mouth hideously gaping with wild ravings as he rolls on the ground and speaking things that may be uh, unaudible and unable to interpret. And yet at his side, in his condition, in his condition of being possessed by an evil spirit, at his side stands a desperate father who is further surrounded by the rest of the disciples who are pointing up toward the glowing figure of Jesus who now we will know in the text is the only answer to this boy's problem. Raphael has brilliantly captured something of the overwhelming contrast between the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration and the complex, troubling world that's awaiting the disciples down at the mountain. For it is on the next day that Peter and James and John were descending from the mountain with great joy. They were excited about what they had seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. They could hardly keep their feet on the ground. They were radiating from the glorious observation of seeing the sun glow in the midnight hour and yet seeing Elijah and Moses, the preeminent lawgiver and the foremost prophet of Israel, speaking, conversing with Jesus while the hovering presence of the Shekinah glory of God 
was over their head. And if that wasn't enough, what would top the case was they would hear the voice coming out of the glory that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In translation, that would simply tell us that they are descending from church, that's what Mount Transfiguration is, church atmosphere where they are encountering the glory of God and the power of God and the presence of his son, conversing, celebrating, even the presence of the ancient of days, the prophets of Elijah and Moses, and yet they are going down from church, leaving church, going down to a context, a community, of chaos, conflict, and confrontation. They are leaving church on Sunday, only on Monday to come back to the real world where there is chaos, conflict, and confrontation. Paul Tillich, the great theologian, says what they did was left the sanctuary lights on the hill to come down to the street lights in the city to see the real world where they have to be confronted by evilness, not on the hill, but down at the bottom of the hill. They left celebration with the Savior to be confronted by chaos of Satan. Their remembrance of shouting on the hill is now going to be replaced by the screaming of a boy on the ground. But they first must experience and witness this agonizing interrogation by the scribes of the law and their fellow comrades, the disciples. They're in deep confrontational dialogue that seems to have been laced with a tremendous amount of intensity and it may have even been somewhat combating as they are listening to the nine converse with these lawmakers. Different versions use different terminology in terms of trying to give us the intensity of the conversation, but it says that Jesus and the three observe questioning by the scribes to the disciples or disputing between the, the, the scribes and the disciples or arguing as some verses says, but again, I like Eugene Peterson. They are being cross-examined by the religious political power that is standing there saying unto them in very convicting terms, you disciples, you are a phony just like your leader because someone brought you a demon-possessed child and you could not deliver them. You should feel ashamed of yourself. You should stop deceiving these people. You should stop naming it and claiming it. You should stop saying that it will happen by faith. You should just face up to the fact that you don't really possess the power that you claim you possess throughout the town. You are just like your master. You are a minority among the majority who is really coming to realize you are not who you really say that you are. And people will do that when you start proclaiming the name of Christ. They will certainly question whether or not the name of Christ has any power. And it will accordingly, uh, certainly challenge you whether or not you should stand and repeatedly let them know that I believe in the name of Christ. They will challenge you to suggest that what you are believing is a hoax. 
It has no life. It has no legs. It has no strength. It has no roots. You are actually believing in a thought pattern that was just as prominent as many others. In fact, what you are believing is, is quite empty. In fact, you should just fold up your tent, go along the way, and never even hear what Jesus has to say again. But they can't do that. Because according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the father believed enough, enough, where he stepped out of his chaotic zone within the crowd and decided that I'm going to see if the representatives of Jesus can address my problem. I want you to, if you would, put the shoes on of this father just for a moment and put yourself in his position. He's a father that is marked by anxiety. He is standing there with his son beside him who is described, as Luke says, as a lunatic. Now, do you know what the word lunatic means? That simply comes out of the word loony, which means that all of the dots don't connect in his lifestyle. Something's wrong somewhere. But he is full of anxiety because he knows that this is not the condition that his son should be in. His heart is aching because this is the boy that he has raised and his, his desire and his dream was to see his son. In fact, he may have even seen his son grow up. Let's just contemporize. Seeing him run across the field playing soccer, playing football, playing baseball, having a run of time when we used to play tag and dodgeball and kickball. And he saw his son being quite active and now he sees his son in a very paralyzed state. And he is saying within himself, my heart is broken so much so that I would rather take the issue that my son is experiencing than to have him to experience that right now. Those of us as parents, you've walked in those shoes. I remember my son was a small boy and he came down with pneumonia and it killed me to see him in that hospital bed and to know that he had to go through surgery. I would have much rather had had the pneumonia myself just to set him free so he would not have to go through that challenge. You know what it means that when you see your child struggling or ill or they're having a very tough time comprehending something, you would do anything in the world to take it away from them and put it in your life because you're strong enough to handle it and put back into their life at least a state of being comfortable where they won't have that challenge. And yet, have you noticed, the boy is silent in the text. Nothing comes from him because the spirit that has seized his whole body has muted his voice. He can't say anything because he's no longer free in his own power. He's under now the control of an evil spirit. And how many of us, if we haven't thought of our own children, have seen some other folk whose children are under some kind of spirit and we know it ain't good? And here it is, this father whose heart is full of anxiety, whose heart is aching tremendously, and yet he has anticipation that something can happen if I can just get him to the representative of who Jesus is. 
and he pushes through the crowd. I, I want to lift up something. I want to lift up this. We may have words of criticism for this father. Uh, it's amazing to me that the father stands for us as a representative that once we tried all of our own remedies, we've gone through our own efforts to clear ourselves of some malady. We've adopted even what mom and grandmama taught us. In my day, I remember castor was the answer to every problem that you had. I mean, it had come to a point where it would be wise for you not to let your mama or your grandma them know there was anything wrong with you because you know where they were going, to the cupboard to get some cast oil. Now, I'm certainly wasn't the medicinal answer for everything, but I tell you what, it sure did work in cleaning you out because by the time you finish working with that stuff all the time, it, it did something. At least it made you think you felt a lot better. But can you imagine? He tried all of the remedies that his parents and foreparents had taught him about. He did everything he could that he knew that he thought would possibly change the condition of his son. But something in his heart calls him to say, I can't do it any longer. My resource has now been exhausted. I need a power greater than I am. I need someone who is bigger than I am. I need something that is larger than I am. I need something that can do more than I can do. I need something that can reach deeper than I can. I need something that can reach farther than I can. And he says, I only know one person that may be able to do that. And at least I can make my way, if not to him, but to his representatives. And you read the text. He, he brought his son to the representatives. But there's an indictment. He said, Master, I brought my son here with the hope that you would fix him because I brought him to your disciples. And they couldn't do anything. They couldn't call out the demon that's in my son. And yet, I understand, according to Mark 3, 16 and 17, and Mark 6 and 7, you gave them power to call out demons. And when I brought this case before them, there was nothing they could do. And the Bible says that when Jesus comes down the hill and raises the question, what are you arguing about? Verse 17 says, a man stepped out of the crowd. Now, I want you to know that in that crowd, this man wasn't the only issues that he needed to have addressed by the Christ. There were others there, other fathers, other mothers, other brothers, other sisters, other family members, other people who had chaotic moments in their life and they had tried and were trying everything they possibly could and they wanted to have their lives fixed. But this man, says the text, stepped out of the crowd and took a step forward. Or maybe this man said in his spirit, it's time for me to make a decision. And do we not know that change never occurs in terms of making us more progressive unless we make a decision? Unless we are willing to come to a point to realize that we in our efforts are ineffective and the Father says to us, when you've gone to your wit's end and you've done all that you can do, 
It's time to make a decision to take your hand off of it and give it over to a hand that's bigger than your hand. Or could the father be trying to tell us inadvertently, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't do like I do. Don't expend all of the energy that you had. Hear Jesus very clearly in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Seek first. Not second, not third, not fourth, not fifth. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all of the other things will be added unto you. Could he be telling us that? And as a result, the father says, instead, follow my direction. I made a decision. I made a decision because I decided that something must be changed and things can't remain the same. As I look at that boy every single day, he can't live like that. He can't remain like that. He can't grow up in that condition. He will not get better. He will only get worse. And maybe that's the challenge to us today to come to a place where we are in a position now where we've seen the way our lives have been for the last several years. And maybe God is trying to tell us when you finally make a decision as you look at your condition, you have to decide, I no longer want to be this way. I can't stay where I am. It's like the lepers in the book of Kings who are outside the colony and they know that in order for them to change, they've got to make a decision. They sit there and they contemplate for a moment. If we stay here, we know we're going to die because we're going to die from a famine. But if we go into the city, it may be an enemy there, but it also might be some food there. It might be our deliverance there. And they made a decision. We must move forward. They went into town only to discover there was no enemy there, but the enemy had left all the food that they needed to survive in the crisis. Maybe God is trying to tell you you need to make a decision because you're standing on the outside looking down the corridor of time but you can't see far enough to know what the end is going to be so you're going to have to make a decision to step out on faith and he stepped out of the crowd and can you imagine what the crowd may have been doing? There were those in the crowd who were talking who were talking first about his son. Look at that crazy acting boy. Look at that fool, just like his mama, just like his daddy, because neither one of them, the elevator don't go all the way up to the top in either one of their lives. And he's only, he's only acting the way his parents are because the apple don't fall far from the tree. They're talking. And in fact, his son is so bad, he can't be a part of our club anymore. He's got to go. He can't be a, his membership has got to be revoked. He no longer can be here. We don't have parents who got lunatic children in our group. He's listening to the chatter. Or the word may be he's not a good father, never has been, never will be. Where's his mother? Where's she at? How come she's not here present watching this same episode? She probably tired of seeing it at home anyway. That's the reason why she stayed home. She don't want to see it anymore or as less as she possibly can. That's what he's hearing could be in the crowd. That's my imagination. Or could the father be depicting for us, Reverend George, something powerful? The father might be acting like Peter acts. 
the father realized that, listen, I've got a choice here. He can stay the way that he is, or I can intercede and do something different on his behalf. And that's what Peter did. Remember, sitting in the boat with the disciples, they were out on the sea, and they looked up and saw a figure coming toward them, and they began to say, it's a ghost. But the figure spoke back Jesus and said, no, it is I. It's not a ghost. It's me. And Peter, as much as we might want to be critical of his uh, putting his foot in his mouth and speaking before he think, Peter says, I tell you what, I might do that from time to time. I ain't fronting. I'm going to tell you that's the way I am. But I got enough sense to know this says that it looks like it's Jesus and it said it was Jesus. I got enough sense to tell it, if you really are Jesus, bid me to come out where you are. Can you imagine the other disciples sitting in the boat? This boy done lost his mind. He not only said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come, but look at this fool. He actually stepping out of the boat thinking he can actually walk on water. And can you see them as Peter takes step number one and step number two and step number three and another hunches and said, hey, I hate to tell you this, but this fool ain't thinking he walking on water. He actually is walking on water. He, he may not be as foolish as we think he is. He's stepping out. He made a decision not to stay in his condition, but to step out of his condition into a better condition. And he walked toward Jesus because he said, Lord, if it's you, I'm not worried about how I'm going to get there. You are the God who becomes a bridge over troubled waters. You know how to make a way out of no way. You know how to make a highway in the midst of the desert. You will make it where I can get to where you are. And that's what Jesus does. And maybe that's what this man is trying to tell us. Early nine then, you got to step out by faith. And you got to say, Lord... I don't know how I'm going to get there, but with your hand outstretched, would you bid me to come? In other words, would you guide me? I hear my ancestors, guide me, lead me, guide me along the way. Lord, if you lead me, I cannot stray. Lord, help me walk each and every day. Lead me, oh Lord, lead me. There it is. Lead me, Lord, where I need to go. And this man says, I, I don't know anything else, but I got to give it over to you, God. I'm stepping forward. And when Jesus said, why are you arguing? This man said, hey, I came forth to let you know, God, that I want to do better. I want my son to do better. I want my family to be better. But I need your help to help me step forward. And God gave him the grace and the strength and the wisdom that he needed to step out of the crowd. I just came by testimony this morning. Stop hanging around the crowd. Get on the grace wagon of God and let God give you what you need to step out of the crowd can you imagine the crowd when he stepped forward what is he doing who he think he is don't worry about it. He's going to be right back here in a few minutes. Don't even worry about it. He's just going to step forward. It's good for his own mental gymnastics. Let him go and step forward but what they didn't know was that God honors stepping forward when you don't have any way of seeing what stepping forward may yield. 
remember those brothers who brought another brother to Jesus and they couldn't get through the front door so what did they do they climbed up to the rooftop and began to pull off the tiles there and drop the man right down in front of Jesus because the, the house was filled up and Jesus says man I haven't seen faith like this in a long time in other words God is saying I'm looking for people who will take a, make a decision to step forward and get out of the crowd you know the danger of following in a crowd don't you you ever seen a herd of wildebeest when one wildebeest jumps into the river all of them eventually are going to follow behind him even when there's danger in the river of crocodiles and alligators waiting for them, just waiting. There's a commercial that comes on now, and the commercial is two wise wildebeest who are standing up there saying, I think I'm going to take that bridge. I'm going to try that bridge because that bridge looks more stable as crossing over, watch this, the troubled waters where the alligators and the crocodiles are. I think that's what God is trying to tell us. You can try all of the other crossing if you want to and follow the crowd, but I got a bridge that will take you over all of your challenges and your struggles. I just need for you to make a decision for the kingdom. Your self-portrait determines your self-conduct. I'm going to see myself walking over that bridge because I see victory that's waiting for me in the, in the end. The father believed that his son, watch this, was not intended to be that way. That father said, this is not the condition that my son was intended to live in. But the story progresses just talking about the one line of verse 17 that's all the one line he steps out of the crowd he makes a decision watch this when the father makes a decision before that came about the father had discovered that the representatives of the church can be quite disappointing so he comes to the disciples he realizes that they are not able to do what needs to be done in terms of healing of his son's body and yet he rec also recognized that there were three things that he was extremely looking for that could change the condition of his son. One, he needed a seed. He was looking for a seed. I, I just need a seed, a word that would bring about change in my son's life. I needed a seed that would change his life, and he knew that that seed was mercy. I need the word... Because the word also is a seed that brings about change. But I need mercy. You notice when he speaks with Jesus, he says, Lord, if, if you can see fit, this is old folk talk, you can see fit to help me out. Have some mercy on me and help us. I need some special favor. In other words, he was saying, I don't deserve what you got to house for me. But if you would just see past my guilt and see past my sin and see past my failure and see past my shortcoming and give me some mercy oh I'm so glad this morning that God saw past my shortcoming and saw past all of my sin and saw past all of my mistakes and saw that I needed some mercy and his mercy met me where I was 
He said I needed to see the change, but I not only needed to see, but I also needed knowledge because knowledge is like why to see the change. I need to hear the word. See, when he came to church, i.e. watching the disciples and the scribes dialoguing, arguing, cross-examining, he saw something that he never anticipated. He didn't anticipate arguing inside of the church. He didn't anticipate that church people who claim the name of God been born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, full with fire, you know, uh, he thought they would be talking holy stuff. But he saw disappointment. He, he was like many people who come to church looking for healing and find out that they get wounded even deeper. He saw where he kind of figured that when he got to the disciples, that even if they're not able to call this thing out, maybe they got some remedy, but they had nothing. In fact, they were in such deep dialogue and such deep argument, disputing, says some text, that the father probably wondered, what is the purpose of this? Is this what I want to join? Is this what I want to be a part of? See, Jesus said something interesting. He said, uh, as people watch you love one another, they're actually watching me in you. That way they know that you are my disciples. But when they see you acting like a fool, that lets them know that I'm in you, but there's also somebody else active in you as well. See, how do I know that? Well, remember when Peter came up to Jesus and Jesus was trying to tell him, listen, I got to die, I got to go away, but I'm coming back again. And Peter said, oh, no, that's not going to happen, Lord. And anybody come try to rub on you, they're going to have to deal with me. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then he told him, you're not talking God talk. You're talking like the devil himself. In other words, both can be active in us from time to time, and our objective is to recognize when God is speaking and to make the evil one shut up. That's what Jesus does. You can't get rid of the devil in the sense that you're going to totally demise him, but every time he shows up, you ought to have enough God in you to look at evil and say, in the name of Jesus, shut up. Get out. Don't come back any longer. Read the book of Acts, chapter 16, I think it is, when this little girl is walking behind Paul, and he and Silas are moving about in the city, and Paul says, uh, the text is turning the city upside down, the little girl says, these are men of God, these are prophets. Now, this is a little girl who's being exploited by men who are using her future-telling skills for their own profit. But she kept saying all these godly things about Paul and Silas around, and Paul, the Bible says Paul became annoyed and got tired of it and looked at that girl and said, you know what, in the name of Jesus, shut up and get out of her and don't ever come back here again. Every now and then you need to do that to evil. I didn't think I'd get no amen right there, but that'd be all right. But look what the text says. He discovered that even in church, you need to look evil in the eye and tell it in the name of Jesus, you're not going to hang around here and create that kind of chaos. I'm not convinced that most of our trouble in church is from the devil anyway. It's us. Yeah, it's us. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me put them on right now. They blinking. It's us. You 
look at the things that we argue about in church. And I'm, I'm making that point because I'm, I'm thinking he's sitting there watching them. The stuff that they argue about just don't seem to be important. Why are they arguing about that? Look at the stuff we argue about. Is the carpet going to be green, blue, red, or gold? Who going to lead worship this morning? The pastor or the associate minister? In fact, the pastor ain't going to be there. No, I ain't going to church today. No, pastor ain't there, man. No, he ain't preaching. Does that really matter? Look at the stuff that, they, that we argue about. Should we start at 9 or 8.30? We're going to have, we're going to move, oh, I'm gonna, here's a good one. We're going to move Zion Day from the third Sunday to the fourth Sunday? That's sacrilegious. You done broke the mold. What? We've always had it on third Sunday. So what? We moved it. I mean, look at the stuff we disagree over. I don't even want to talk about our meetings. We say things to each other that's mean. Church folk can be some of the most meanest, evil, agonizing people you ever want to encounter. And still leave out telling you, in the name of Jesus, I love you, though. What, you, what is that? And I'm just raising a point because I am convinced that there are people who come to church and who become a part of the family only to realize when they try to become a part of a ministry, they hit a brick wall. And the brick wall is my territory. Don't come across this line. right Here's a line in the sand. Don't step over this line. Remember, I always tell you, you can, once you die, somebody's going to step over that line anyway. We're going to replace your behind. We're going to roll your butt right down here in front of the altar, say a few good words about you, and roll your behind right up there to the graveyard, and we're going to be looking for somebody to fill that role the very next day. That's the reality of life, baby girl. That's it. So why be territorial? And this man, I'm convinced, is watching the scribes argue, y'all not operating in the law of Moses. You... You, you saying this crazy stuff, talking about laying hands and casting out demons. And I know Jesus supposedly gave you that power, but you know you can't do that. Dialoguing about word in the sense of its being confusing and creating chaos. And Paul says that the word of God is not about confusion. Amen. And yet this man tells us, looking for mercy. He came looking for healing. He came looking for hope for his son. And do you not know people come to the house of God, they don't care about your carpet, they don't give a hoot about what time we start, they don't care about this other stuff that we are. All they want to know is, is there a word from the Lord? Is there something you can give me that I can grasp on that will help me make it through the course of the week? I'm on the verge of suicide here because I'm feeling hopeless. And this all y'all can discuss? Is whether or not nine lights are on instead of ten. He's a father who quickly recognized after being disappointed with church folk. That also sometimes God 
lets us get into situations where we have to depend solely on him and not on anybody else, particularly church folk, so that the miracle, what happens to the life of the person can be credited to the miracle and not to the aid of people. Because people have a habit of making sure that everyone understands how they've made contribution to the healing of your life. And God is saying, uh-uh, sometimes I need to make sure that people understand from whom all blessings flow and that I'm the one that gives the healing and you're just an instrument, a conduit in my hand. And sometimes God says, I got to fix it where you can't fix it no matter how hard you try. And so the better way for the point to be realized is that the man said, I asked your disciples to call this thing out, and they couldn't do it. In fact, Luke says, I begged your disciples, and they couldn't drive it out. That's the operative term, drive out. Because in the driving out, the man realizes that there may be a point that the miracle may not happen overnight. See, some healings... Some, some moments in which we're transformed doesn't happen immediately. It's time. And I know, I'm, I know I'm on the right street. Here's a point. Because all of us, before you were born again, there's some stuff that you were doing. And guess what? After you've been born again, you're still doing it. That's because God is working some things out in your life and we're still trying to unload the baggage of the flesh that Paul says we have. But that's a good thing in the sense that it helps us realize that we are not only not perfect, but we have a goal of aspiration to keep working at that we may try to attain some level of perfection. That's why I love Paul so much in Romans chapter 7. That's my favorite chapter because Paul says, the good that I want to do, I find myself not doing, but the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He's the one that gets the monkey off my back. He's the one that takes the burden off my shoulders. He's the one that helps me break the bondages in my life to release the chains in my life and to help me get out of the prison that I put myself in I give God glory that there are some things that happens over time and I think the man might be suggesting to us that all things may not happen immediately it may take some time and that's why the man opted for to step forth for deliverance for his son. He not only made a decision, he not only discovered that church folk can be disappointing, but he stepped forth with an option for deliverance. He wants the life of his son changed. Now, he saw all of the chaos that could have taken place in the dialogue between the disciples and the lawmakers, but could it have been that he also heard a disciple or someone mention Deuteronomy 30 and 19 in the crowd. Now you might wonder, what is Deuteronomy 30 and 19? It's Moses' word to Israel as he says to them, as he steps forward on behalf of his son. Could he have heard these words? I call heaven and earth to record this day against you <clears throat> that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life, here it is, that both you and your seed may live.
could it be that this father heard someone breathe those words and you didn't catch it? You didn't catch it. Moses says, I'm setting before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. L listen to Moses. Let me help you out, says Moses. Choose life so that it may be well with both you and your seed, that both of you can live. Choose life. And that's why the man said, I'm stepping forward. I know what everybody else is doing in the crowd. They're hanging back and watching. But I'm stepping forward because I'm choosing life. Not only for me, which is a suggestion that the man himself says, I need healing. Reverend George, I got mental health issues as well. So you didn't see that in the text, did you? I know you didn't. That's James Murphy's spiritual imagination. <laughs> Because if you read Deuteronomy 30 and 19, read it closely and slowly, listen to what Moses says. So that you and your seed. So whatever death is hovering above your life, you deal with that so your seed may live and don't have to deal with the death of you as well. In other words, he's saying, do it to break generational curse. God Almighty, I, if I had more time, I'd preach that right now. Break the curse, but I need for you, Daddy, to step forward. That's why the church ought to have father initiatives as we have in the Omega Sci-Fi. Yeah. You need somebody to step forward to a fatherless child to help break a curse. So that single mother is saying to those of us in this church, men, I need you to help me raise this boy. I know I can raise him, but there's some things I can't teach him, and I need you to help me teach him. And then there's a young boy who's raising his own daughter who stepped forward and says, there's some things, my sister, that I can teach my daughter, but I can't teach her how to be a woman. I need you to help me teach her how to be a woman. In other words, he's trying to help us understand if we aren't careful, we are doing nothing more than perpetuating generational curses. But the man says, I'm going to step forth and change this thing. I'm not going to let my son stay where he is. And that's why when Jesus asked the question, why y'all arguing, he says, Jesus, I brought my son to you. I went to your disciples, your church folk, they couldn't do anything. I'm here before you right now. Because God is saying there's some issues, they can pray about it, but you need to come directly to me so I can fix it for you. Could it be that he was depending on the words of Psalm 34, 4? I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Lord, I want to do better. But help me to step forward. Now, what is, what is all this translating to us? Well, for us, it means, Lord, I need for you to help me step forward to the presence of who you are that my life might be renewed that you might change me, that the condition that I'm in, I need a new attitude. 
I need a whole mindset to be changed. That's why Paul argues for us in Romans 12 and 1 and 2 that we have to constantly renew our mind because the atmosphere in its spiritual dimension of warfare is forever feeding into my mind the opposite of who God is. And I got to read the word of God to combat the ideas because it's all about my mind. Lord, renew my mind. But then, Lord, restore my life. My life needs to be restored because I need to find some new adjectives to describe myself. See, right now, he's described as a crazy child, as a lunatic. And the father is saying, uh-uh, that, that's, that's not, that's not going to be the description of my son. Mm-mm. I'm going to take the high road and be spiritual, blessed and highly favored. That's, that's how I want to see my son. Blessed and highly favored, anointed and appointed. I'm using all the cliches, anointed and appointed. The whole nine y'all. I'm going to speak over his life. And I'm going to speak that are positively productive describing terms. And Lord, I need you to restore my life so that I can begin to speak over his life. And then finally, his old preacher said, I'm coming to a close now. Reconstruct my life. That boy's life, we're going to talk about this boy in the first Sunday. That boy's life is toe up from the flow up. The evil spirit has totally disoriented and destroyed his life to a point now where it needs to be reconstructed. And some of us are sitting in this sanctuary we don't look like what we're going through. See, there's two sets of us in here. Actually, there's three. The first set is, we don't look like what we've been through. That's the first set. See, the first set says, I, I, I know I don't look like it, but I've been through hell and back. But I want you to know I've been there, and I've survived to tell you what it means to go there. And now I got a testimony to tell somebody else who might have to go there or already there as well. That's some of us. Then there's another group of us. See, the other group of us, we don't look like what we're in right now. We look good when we come to church. We're smiling. We realize that we're in a war. We realize that we are battling in spiritual warfare. We also know that we are in a battle to the points where there are wickedness taking place in high spaces. We're dodging darts all around us. And I don't look like it on Sunday because I'd be so glad to get to the house of God that I can release myself and then be restored through the word, through worship, through faith. I don't look like what I'm going through, but I'm going through something like now. Then there's the final group. I ain't been through nothing yet. And I look so good that I am certain that nothing will touch me. All I got to say is three words. Keep on living. That's it. It's coming. In this world, you will have tribulations. 
troubles, heartaches, disappointments. And I've concluded that the reason why you come to church and find disappointed people is because ain't nowhere else for them to go. You think about that. It's just sad that we wound our own wounded. But this is a place of where else are we going to go? We got nowhere else to go. Church is at least a place where all of us are likewise wounded and trying to put ourselves back together by God's grace. And some of us are more successful at it than others. And there are others who are struggling at it. And listen, I'm convinced that God is saying you cannot and I will not let you say all the time I'm coming up the rough side of the mountain. God says I want you to come down the other side of the mountain. I'm tired of you coming up the rough side of the mountain. But it requires a decision. And it requires getting beyond the disappointment of what we see in church. And getting to a space where we opt for deliverance. Lord, I want to do better. But I need your help to step forward. I'm convinced that if we take that posture, Jesus will meet us right where we are. And begin to change us. Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our strength and our redeemer.